Welcome to episode 135 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and with me is the Professor, Peter Van Onselen. G'day, Pete. G'day, Hugh. I, I, I want to pull my American passport out and talk about the US midterms. Let's do that. I've never voted. I wonder. I think I'm probably eligible to vote, but I've never resided in the US, but I do have a US passport. I think in theory... I could probably vote, but uh, in practice... Were you born there? No, I wasn't. No, my mum was American, ah. but she still had her American citizenship in Australia when I was born and then had to give it up, which she wouldn't have to today for a, a job as a matron in a hospital, a public hospital. So anyway, we're digressing. I was just checking to see whether you could, in fact, if you were a natural-born citizen of the United States, of course, you could stand for the presidency yourself and add to your many baubles, prof. You know, that, 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 that in some ways is the only thing stopping me becoming president of the United States, Hugh, is that I'm not a natural born citizen. I think it probably is. Otherwise, it was just a lay down Mazir, wasn't it? Yes, I think so. <laughs> Look, this is, you know, we are guilty, let's face it, of being completely sick for American politics. There's something about the drama of it, the numbers, the fact that there's so many lights shining that it just throws up so much that's fascinating. But this has been a really, really interesting midterm election because the script was not delivered, or at least it hasn't been delivered. Talk me through it. Yeah, well, the red wave, that is the Republican wave that was expected to see them not only pick up the House as well as the Senate in the Congress, but you know do well in various other contests right around the joint and do so handsomely as opposed to narrowly, hasn't turned out to be a wave. It's just a little trickle. And by that, it's not to suggest that they didn't do well, counting still underway, but they are going to, by accounts, certainly pick up the House of Representatives, but only narrowly, which is an issue because there's not uh, party-aligned voting over there the way there is in Australia. So a narrow win in the House of Representatives in the United States isn't what a narrow win can be in the House of Representatives in Australia. We should make that point, I think, for our listeners. But also, it's an expectations game. They're expected to have dozens uh, of seats in the back pocket uh, of the new Republican speaker, but in fact, it looks like it's going to be a handful. And even then, it is still a little bit contested. The Senate is the more important race where it was assumed again that they would get a majority there and hence have it in both houses. Now that is on a knife's edge uh, with a possible runoff in Georgia that could end up being a key decider on that one down the track, but we'll wait and see. But again, underperforming from expectations. And this is the key point, Hugh, which I suspect we'll talk about. Where the Republicans fell short in their bid to have this landslide victory was in particular amongst personnel who were essentially handpicked rhetorically by Donald Trump. So the real Trumpites who were seen as his people were the ones who did the worst amongst the Republicans and others did better. And so as a result, that, that has put his 2024 presidential run in jeopardy and his main, you know, sort of alternative runner for, for that role, the governor down in Florida, he won with a 20% margin as governor uh, to be re-elected. So there's real question marks about Trump now. I don't actually share them and we might be able to have a debate about that and I'll tell you why I don't share them. But at the moment, Trump is lashing out. Reports just a short time ago that he's sort of implying that this was his wife's fault. And he's, you know, doing what he always does. The narrative is that he's finished and a lot of Republicans who were Trump supporters, you know, sort of six years or thereabouts ago, are now no longer Trump supporters. They're saying he should go. I don't think he's finished. But uh, to quote uh, Shakespeare, it's not the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning. I'd go the other way around and I'd say reports of my death, Hugh, are greatly exaggerated. 
Really? Okay. Well, look, that's fine. Let's 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 have that, RG, because I hope I'm wrong. By the way, I yeah. desperately bloody hope I'm wrong. So, so essentially, Trump is a confidence trick, in my view, and he works. He has this narrative around him of being an unstoppable force as long as he keeps surprising people on the upside. Initially, Trump, he can't be serious as a candidate. Oh, look, he's got the nomination. He can't be serious for the president. Oh, my God, he's become the president. You know, he did better in the midterms in 2018 than people expected. People thought, you know, oh, God, we've elected Trump. Now, two years later, we've got this opportunity to say that we got that completely wrong. It was a terrible mistake. We want to walk away from it. So the narrative four years ago in the Trump midterms was that there was going to be this great wash away from the Republican Party as everyone felt remorse about Donald Trump. Didn't happen. And in fact, as he said at the time, the candidates he particularly campaigned for in 2018 did best. Again, Trump had surprised on the upside. And then when it came down, of course, to the famous 2020 election, he did get the second most votes ever recorded in a presidential election. Just happened Joe Biden got a bunch more. And then he, he was able to go to his people and say, Ah, yes, but of course, that's because there are all these, you know, it was robbed from us. And for he's, he's been able to sustain this notion of it all being a steal, that he was, you know, obviously had the presidency stolen from him by corrupt Democrats and elites and all other sorts of stuff. And a lot of people within the party came on board at all different other levels. Again, he's surprised on his capacity to essentially reshape the Republican Party from grassroots on up. Now, he's surprised on the downside. And the fact of that, I think, is really, really important because mm. people start to look at the emperor and wonder just what is the quality of the thread. Now, let me give the, the counter position to that because uh, I, I don't disagree that that all makes logical sense. But I actually think also uh, on the same logic, you can actually come to the opposite conclusion, which is this. Trump is a confidence player. Trump, as you point out, loves to surprise on the upside when people don't think that he can do well. That could also be this moment where he's been written off again because there's been an underperformance by Trump acolytes. But underperforming Trump acolytes doesn't necessarily equate to an underperforming Trump, and particularly at a primary. And that's really the nub of my point, is that I could imagine Trump feeding now off the negativity and the assumptions that he's gone, as opposed to the assumptions that he should run and he could win. I could imagine Donald Trump, where everyone's saying he should be the Republican candidate on that side of the parliament, I mean, and then he can therefore beat an aging Joe Biden if he runs or whoever else the Democrats might throw up in the times that we live in, I could imagine that scaring Trump a little bit because he doesn't like being the favourite or having those sort of expectations put on him. Now that his candidates have been hammered and there's all this talk about there being an obvious new alternative in the Florida governor, I could imagine Trump seeing that as an opportunity to go, you know what, I'm going to do what I did in 2016 and surprise a lot of you again. Then he runs. He wins because Trump is a force of nature, whether we like him or not, that his acolytes aren't, does better, particularly in a primary where you take out all of those undecided voters in the middle who probably have had a gut full of Trump uh, and could be a problem for him at a general election. I'm not suggesting he necessarily wins the general. But I, I could see him feeding off the underdog status that is pervading in the last 24 to 48 hours as a consequence of these underperforming results, particularly amongst Trump candidates. And particularly when it then becomes amongst those Republicans in a primary contest down the track. And we saw him, you know, a previous governor of Florida, Jeb Bush, touted as the big next thing in the Bush dynasty when he was having his crack at running for, for the Republican nominee. 
we saw Trump just eviscerate him in one of those early debates. It might have even been the first one. Yes, but but, but Jeb Bush and Ron DeSantis are different beasts. True. They are true. And, and I agree with that. Look, my thesis, I'm open to it being wrong. But I guess my point is, I think it's actually really in play. And, you know, away from the rhetoric of sort of trying to make a prediction that, that's a little bit different, that, that Trump is far from finished and be a contrarian. I'm not so much predicting that. I'm just saying that I still think it's a genuine coin toss. And I think that people are doing what they often do with Trump and they're letting their hope that this finishes him get a little bit in the road of what might actually be the consequence of this, which is that he does what he's done before. Yeah, that's an argument, certainly an argument. I think if it comes down and we're going to wait in the coming days for this announcement that Trump has teased everyone he's going to deliver and everyone presumes he's going to run, you know, maybe surprise us again and say, no, I'm not going to. I back Ron DeSantis. But that doesn't seem to be the uh, the colour of the man. Can I quickly say, Hugh, I'm, I mean, I think you're right. Like, it's not his colour. And who the hell knows what he's going to do? I guess my point is, I could have just as easily seen him not run, even if the Trump wave had succeeded at this election, because I could see him putting his hand up and going, see, I told you, I'm a legend. Suck is all. You're all a bunch of bastards but I'm now going to hand over to one of my acolytes, yeah. just like I advocated for them at, at this midterm. So he could do anything because he is a lot older now and maybe he doesn't want to put himself through trying to win another presidential election at his age. Who the hell knows, right? I guess my point is that the underperformance of his acolytes at this election, I could see the arrogance of Trump taking the view that, well, that's because they're not me. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> that's because they're a, a poor man's version of me. Hey, by the way, fun fact, you remember George W. Bush and you remember Bill Clinton? Mm -hmm. Here's something for you. Both George W. Bush and Bill Clinton are younger than Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Isn't that fascinating? And you can obviously throw Barack Obama in, in on that as well. Oh, Barack Obama, much younger. That's right. He's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's my age. He's a mere youth. So, okay, back to, the, back to the game as it might go. Ron DeSantis, could there be this kind of cl a clash, a real contested Republican side between two Quite similar people, Trump with all his uh, name recognition but baggage, and Ron DeSantis with less name recognition but a lot less baggage, but similar sort of anti-woke, you know, whatever. That could be a real contest on the Republican side. But if you look on the Democrat side, and this is where I think there is a danger here for Joe Biden, because he looks at it and he can say, see, I'm not as bad as you think. I didn't get pasted despite inflation running through the roof and despite unemployment rising up, despite the fact that 75% of Americans polled believe the country is heading in the wrong direction. Now, some of those think it's heading in the wrong direction because of the Democrats, and some think it's heading in the wrong direction because Trump's still around the place undermining democracy. But still, that's an enormous number of people in America who basically think that the nation, this beacon of freedom, is going to hell in a handcart. Joe Biden turns around to everyone and says, look, I did okay. I might be unpopular generally. I might be stumbling and aged and infirm, which is the way in which it seems to come across to people, but I'm still your best guy. I'm still your best guy. And in fact, maybe he's not. And that it stops the Democrats having a good look around for someone else who might be a next generation leader who can say, Biden, you did what you needed to do, which is to beat Trump. And now it's time to pass the baton on. And I just wonder if the Democrats might wind up, as a consequence of this not-so-bad outcome, being stuck with a leader who maybe can't win again, and particularly, in my view, could not win again against Ron DeSantis. Well, and that's what I was about to say. I, we completely are on the same page on that one. I think if it's DeSantis, then you know someone like Biden looks like yesterday's man, and DeSantis has the charisma as well as the generational change, and he's not 
as offensive as Trump. You know, he's got elements of the Trump agenda, but not all of them. Uh, I could easily imagine him doing incredibly well against Joe Biden. I mean, if Joe Biden gets reelected, you know, he could well become the first U.S. president to die of natural causes in office. You know, I mean, he, I mean, because he he'll be what uh, eighty one, eighty two when running again. Yeah sort of pushing out to 85, 86 if he served a full term for a second term in office. Hard to believe. And, and Kamala Harris is, is on my assessment. And I, I think now and others are dud having seen seen her. God God bless her, but she's... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been disappointing. That's been really disappointing to me, actually. I, I, I had high hopes uh, that she would do much better than that. But it was, it's a bit of a telltale sign, isn't it? That when it comes to that, that sort of high office, substantial amounts of time either in the Senate or a, a time, a period as a governor where you're like a little mini president for your state is very important. And she didn't have either of those, you know, long-serving representative career or a period as a, as a state governor. So I think that started to show in terms of her suddenly being thrust into that role of VP, particularly with the expectations, Hugh, of her being VP. A lot of VPs just know that they're signing up for a job that is largely symbolic unless the president gets assassinated. But with her, because of the age of Joe Biden, you know the, the sort of assumptions that she could be a natural successor to him made it much harder for her to to shine if she didn't have what it takes. And it appears that she doesn't. Yeah. And just a quick point on uh, DeSantis. DeSantis has many things. One of the things is he uh, one of his policies. Florida is a place where woke goes to die. That's his <laughs> great uh, slogan. And um, so you can't in schools, he's got the legislation, it's called the don't say gay. So no one at a school in Florida is allowed to uh, say anything and, and certainly not put any structures around to support, uh, you know, young gay students, etc. He was also hugely opposed to COVID lockdowns. Florida is a fast growing population. Most of the counties in the US have a falling population. This is people move to the coast and so on, but Florida attracts them with the weather and all the rest of it. And many retirees go to Florida, so it's an older population. And yet he opposed lockdowns and so on. 82,000 people, 82,000 people died of COVID in Florida. So uh, didn't do them any harm at all. Nope, not at all. I mean, it, it speaks a bit to the American culture, doesn't it? The sort of the freedom and, and the, 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 the idea of, of complete freedom of expression and, and freedom of movement. But it also speaks to the backlash uh, that a lot of social justice and, you know, sort of rights-based causes uh, have are facing. And in America, and we, we return to this all the time when we talk about this, Hugh, but in America, I think people like him or Trump uh, on these sort of extreme anti this, that or the other positions on things, they do much better in a non-compulsory voting system than they would in a compulsory voting system. Yeah. And he is a classic example of that. I could imagine him winning in a landslide in the right electoral environment in the United States. But I, I find it hard to see a lot of these figures that succeed in US politics succeeding if it had the Australian system of compulsory voting. They ain't going to change their system. They are not. Let's take a quick break. Back in just a second. Welcome back. This is episode 135 of The Professor and the Hack. We're going to maintain an international flavour, I think, just for a minute, because uh, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is in for a big trip. He's eight days solid, travelling around Asia. He's got to go to the East Asia Summit in ASEAN. That's happening in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. 
Then off to the big one, the G20 in Bali, and then after that, APEC in Thailand, APEC, which focuses on trade. These are big summits. Xi Jinping, we're expecting Vladimir Putin to turn up. Putin is turning up at a time when it is now being reported today that the Russian military leadership is going to abandon its hold on the important southern Ukrainian city of Kherson. Hugh, I want to get to that. I really want your strategic thoughts on that. But just before we get to that, and maybe you'll intertwine this, I mean, you're flying the flag for us at Network 10 at the G20. What are your thoughts on that? The idea that Putin, you know, he's got, I guess at one level, he's got a right to attend. He's part of it. But the idea that he would attend in the midst of what's going on, I mean, what kind of spectacle is that going to be? Well, assuming he does turn up, so let's assume that he does. And this is what's mm. so fascinating. So the G20, which includes the European Union as a member and a whole bunch of states, of course, Australia being one of them, a number of those states are actually at this very hour actively arming an enemy of Russia in a current hot war. Yeah. Now, we haven't had a G20 like that in... Well, I don't know that they ever have because the, G, because the the G20 is a reasonably recently recent construct. It's only what is it, you know, fifteen years old or something. So we've never had this before. Not that I'm aware of, no. And so it'd be fascinating to see when they do the family photograph. There was a famous shot of one of those summits of Scott Morrison all on his own, looking at his phone, and no one sort of sticking around, <laughs> you know, to do that sort of shoulder pats and all that kind of carry on that they do. But Putin. Interesting. You've got to give him something for chutzpah for turning up at all. What's your prediction? Do you think he'll show up or do you think that there's sort of talk about it and ultimately he won't? I don't know, to be perfectly honest. Oh, come on. You've got to, you've got to pick. Gun to your head, Hugh. What do you, what do you go with? No, nah, because I think it'll come down to Putin's a man of pride and he understands theatre and his only audience that he particularly cares about is his domestic one. Mm. And so if he thinks that there is something in it for him to be seen there as it will be presented through Russian media, as swaggering the world stage, then he'll do it. Or, or almost in the negative, if he is seen as running away, then he almost has to do it. But if he gets a lot of people, you know, blanking him, you know, it may well be that he sees there are downsides and he'll find compelling reasons not to be there. I think, you know, I mean, and, and I, I agree with you, I think it's a sort of a toss of the coin whether he's there or not, who the hell knows, right? But I reckon the biggest decision maker in his mind could well be and this will depend a little bit literally in the days to come where they're at, and that'll maybe move us into some of these strategic decisions around Ukraine that we were just talking about with what Russian withdrawal. But I think his biggest thought process will be, do I need to fear being out of my own country for the period of time I will be out of it to attend the G20? The old sort of coup, the coup while you're on the plane, yeah. You know, there's plenty of historical precedents around the, around the world, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, I mean, I, like, I genuinely think that as long as he can say, I have nothing to fear on that front and truly believe that, then I think he'll go. But he, I believe that if he decides not to go, the biggest reason that he will make that decision will be a genuine fear that if I'm out, I could be always out. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? That, that's a kind of an African coup yeah. type of setup where there is, uh, in the past number of countries, where there's no real inst institutional depth at all. I'm not sure it's at the point where if he went out of the country, he'd get tapped out because there's still he still basically controls most of the institutions of such as they are in Russia. But uh, who knows? I, I could imagine him getting tapped out for a more extreme Russian leader, by the way. I mean, I, I, the West has this sort of notion that, uh, which I often read, that Putin's going to get removed, you know, because of, you know, the, the, the war in Ukraine. Well, that might be true if it does happen. But if it does, it's a removal by hardliners that feel that he's botched something 
that he hasn't gone far enough on, if you can believe that, I think, as opposed to the sort of the soft removal by the centre. I, I, I'm not sure that that's right. But I, let me get your thoughts on, on this sort of strategic development in Ukraine, which could have a factor on what Putin does or doesn't do around the G20. How significant is this withdrawal? So this is the city of Kherson. It's down the south. They, they swept through. It was one of the, the cities they got in the first few days, really, the first couple of weeks of the invasion after February 24. It is, they have judged to be indefensible, undefensible, cannot be defended. And so they've retreated over the Dnieper River back again, rather than essentially be caught out, encircled and lose, you know, major Russian force. They will doubtless now pummel the hell out of Kherson with artillery. So it's, you know, it's no great comfort to the people of Ukraine. And it goes back to right at the very beginning of the invasion, one of the key questions and one of the big you know, profound questions was, what does Putin want? And at that stage, you know, the question was, did he want to completely take over Ukraine? Or did he just want to secure, you know, those provinces, the oblasts, as they call them in the south and east, where there's a Russian speaking population, or something in between. And one of the obvious geographical boundaries is the Dnieper River, which flows out of, I think it's Belarus, but out, out of the north, and then basically carves out about a third of the country and then flows into the Black Sea. Now, they haven't got all of that, by the way, because uh, the Ukrainians have, have moved, moved to east and, and recovered a whole bunch of ground. But it may be that they'll just put some lines there, and it still leaves Putin the opportunity. And this would seem to be something he might be angling for if he can't take Ukraine, where at some stage he declares victory on the east side of the river. And if he does that, and of course he's legally tried to put a fig leaf around it by claiming these referendums and annexing those bits of territory into Russia and so on, it becomes harder to hoist him out because if he says, that's all I want, let's call peace. And the Ukrainians will say, no, 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 we want every inch of territory. But the danger there is, is that Ukraine's backers and the rest of the world say, look, do we want this war to go on for years and years with energy prices up through the roof, disruption to grain and, and food costs, people starving because Ukraine is such a, a breadbasket. Let's just, let's just have a peace. And there may be a way there for Russia to... to, to save a bit of pride. Save mm. pride, get most of what they want. And, you know, maybe that's where all this is, all this is headed. And maybe the compromise, like the, the, the unsaid compromise in that, even if, you know, Ukraine is frustrated by this and would rather fight on to get those parts of their territory back, but as you say, they can't do it alone. If, if the West starts withdrawing all of the aid and support that it is, uh, that becomes a, an unrealistic option for them. Maybe the compromise that everybody sort of accepts is that Ukraine does end up joining NATO. And you know that's something that will make Russia irate. But in a sense, they have to wear that. And they can balance that versus the additional provinces that they've now picked up. And everybody sort of sits there and says, look, bad luck, the West says, because as you say, energy prices and all the rest of it, food supply chains, we're not going to continue to support an endless war to reclaim these provinces across the river. Russia says, happy days. We've picked up what we always wanted in the first place. And then the US and Ukraine, et cetera, say, well, Ukraine is now part of NATO, so this can never happen again because you know our various rules, et cetera, of membership. Yep. Uh, and Russia just sort of ignores that part and says, well, we don't really care that they're part of NATO now because the whole concern we had was these provinces that we wanted and we've got them. And it sort of becomes a halfway house that, Nobody's entirely satisfied with, but it perhaps at least allows the world to move on. Yes, it's totally unsatisfactory to Ukraine. But what they want to do is every inch, which includes the Crimean Peninsula, all that Black Sea coast, 
Ukraine's traditional borders, and then, you know, down the track joining NATO. So that's the Ukrainian wish. But the prospects of that happening, not least because a lot of those people in Crimea, et cetera, perceive themselves as being Russians, don't have an interest in being part of Ukraine, are almost impossible. So the Ukrainian ambition and aim is almost certainly, no matter what support goes into them, is unlikely to happen in anything that we can foresee. Yeah, and, and the only thing that you could do, I mean, getting NATO membership is, is something, but it probably needs to go hand in glove with some sort of, you know, at least medium, if not long-term assistance package structure from the EU and the US, not to mention the rest of the world, to help beef up the Ukrainian economy going forward as well, perhaps. Well, they're going to they're have a huge reconstruction bill. So oh, yeah. a bit like after a natural disaster, there will be economic growth as everything, every ounce of cement in all of Europe will get flown into, you know, will be transported into Ukraine to, to rebuild it. But one problem with NATO is that you can't join NATO if you have a disputed border. That's one of the preconditions for joining NATO. Mm. And there will be a disputed border long into the future unless they strike a deal with them. Well, then they can work, they, they can work around those, those rules. Yeah. Well, but they've got, well, they've got to get Russia. The reason why that exists is that if you've got a disputed border and you've got the full force of NATO behind you, it almost becomes tempting to constantly probe on your border to engineer a fight and then say, ah, we've got NATO, into war we go. And NATO doesn't want to be bound into those little local disputes. But they, they can find ways to write that in, though, I, I'm, I'm, the, the bureaucrats, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I, I'm not downplaying the, the complexity of that, but I just think that to find a piece that all sides can live with, even if they're not entirely happy with, n- not giving Ukraine NATO membership, but also withdrawing support if Russia holds on to its next provinces, then I, I think that becomes a bridge too far for the West to claim that it held the line in this situation. So they need to find something that somehow wraps a bow around it, including that, I think, if they're going to let Russia hold on to those provinces. Yeah, we'll see about that. Let's come home a little bit. This rush of stuff that's going on, we've got uh, the Medibank hack, which is troubling people. NDIS, we've heard from Bill Shorten today saying that he wants to see a big tightening up, particularly around invoices. He says too many invoices are just sent through and they get paid. He says he doesn't want to create a new world of millionaire providers to to the NDIS. He sees that's where the money's going to be saved. There's IR going through. And I guess on the end of the year question, this is the Albanese year. He won government. As we look towards the end of the year, how do you think he's done? Well, I mean, I, th- I think you can only give him a, a positive rating, it then just becomes a debate about how, how positive, I suppose. How do I rate him? Well, you know, he won the May election. He managed to secure a majority, even if it's somewhat narrowly. He contributed to the obliteration of the Liberal Party in conjunction with the Teals, but you can't underestimate the force of Labor on that. He has so far managed to negotiate relatively effectively with the crossbench, particularly in the Senate. The IR laws uh, are still up in the air though and they'll pass the house with two weeks left to try to then negotiate them through the senate we'll see if that does or doesn't happen he placated business with his jobs and skills summit until you know creating some tension in that relationship around these ir laws and his treasurer has made what i would call a solid start the jury for me is still out on what comes next so i guess the way i'd word that hugh is i'd give him a high rating for 2022 i don't i don't see how you can't in a way However, I think that there is a very genuine question mark whether he can retain that high rating by the end of 2023, 
or whether it just comes plummeting down. And that's where, whether he has reforming instincts and the ability to continue to deal with the crossbench effectively in the Senate to pass necessary legislation in 2023 in the wake of energy, inflation, interest rates, potentially rising unemployment and all the rest of it. 2023 is going to be a very difficult year for Anthony Albanese, so he should uh, you know, pour himself a nice glass of wine this Christmas and enjoy the fact that he gets a good rating for 2022, but not take for granted that that's going to extend necessarily. The work begins. Do you agree with that? Yeah, look, I think that's sound. I think the real work is ahead. I think uh, the slaying of the inflation dragon and also what that means for people in the real world as they look at their household budgets, I'm told mortgage brokers are flat out with calls as people come down and saying, how, how the hell can I, can I get a better deal? Can I shave off something? People are starting to really feel that aspect of it, rents going up, and of course, power prices in the various forms, gas and, and electricity going up, causing people a lot of anxiety. The fact that you know one in four Australian households struggle to meet their daily bills, that's always been a high figure, a distressingly high figure. But I think at the moment, and obviously in a higher interest rate environment and inflationary environment, that becomes a real lived reality for more and more people. And uh, it hurts. And that, how that goes to anger or, and how people think the government is listening to them and affecting change to help them. And also on another level, bringing down those price increases as fast as possible. So it's just a short-term shock, not a long-term permanent arrangement that goes through people's lives. That'll be where they'll be marked in the coming year. And that is serious hard work. It's, it's nowhere in the world is that easy to fix. Mm. Just before we go, I do want to draw attention to something. 10 years first, we've been reporting solidly this week. It's a, it, on some levels in financial terms, it is minuscule. It is a tiny event. It's a few million dollars. But inexplicable, I think, error by the otherwise energetic, smart, hardworking emergency management minister, Murray Watt, is that there is an outfit called Fortum Australia, which provides counselling and other support services mental health services and so on, for the thousands of people who've been absolutely in the front line of Australian life in recent years, the SES volunteers, the fireys, professional and, and volunteer groups, police, paramedics. The last government put in the budget $10 million for this outfit, Fortum Australia, to provide these mental health services. They were originally brought in to provide them and got the contract to provide them after the Black Summer bushfires. It went through in the last Morrison budget then they struggled with the new government to get the money. There seems to be a misunderstanding about it. They had to provide the services because that was the deal, but they've struggled to get the money out of the Albanese government. So Murray Watt now says, well, I want this to go to a competitive tender in the new year sometime. And I'll, I'll accelerate that process, he said this week, under pressure. So at some stage, there will be a tender, open tender process, and Fordham Australia and others can apply for this money. And we know what these tender processes are like, and ultimately a decision will be made, and ultimately the checkbook will run again. But there is this funding gap, and that means that hundreds of highly vulnerable, traumatized first responders who are getting counseling support, and anyone who's got the first knowledge of supporting people through post-traumatic stress when it's in the acute phase, the real, uh, let's say it, suicidal state of psychological loss that they're in, Often that counselling support is the lifeline. It is the thread that keeps people on this planet. And with what seems like needless, pointless harm to these people, the money's been cut off while a tender process goes through into which the minister says, this outfit, Fordham Australia, well, they can tender for it. 
they were given the money with the expectation they had to deliver the services. They're doing what was asked of them. And there's this gap of some months and lives are seriously at risk for a needless, needless process. And we've tried to talk to the prime minister's office about this in advance of it all. And, and on it goes. And I just feel as if, you know, for a very simple sustain the money to this outfit until the tender process is complete, the problem solved, the people are supported, and there seems to be a reluctance to do it. And I think that's shameful and inexplicable on the part of a mob that's done pretty well otherwise. Well said, Hugh. It is sickening would be another word that I would throw into the mix. And, you know, there's a lot that the media quite rightly gets attacked for. There's a lot that it shouldn't be attacked for. But one of the powerful things is that it can draw attention to exactly something like this and hopefully through the attention that is drawn to it, get a change from government, which has not happened yet. But as you just mentioned, you know, and this often happens and a lot of viewers and listeners don't often realise this, but quite often the media gets a story like this one, tries to discreetly chat to the government of the day just to sort of see if this quirk that has been drawn to the media's attention can be dealt with as a mistake rather than as an intention or an intended moment of, of nastiness. That didn't work here and it's gone public and the government have relented purely to bring forward the tender process, but not to do what you say and, and, and close that gap for these people who desperately need the services. And that's just not good enough. And the only thing that's going to change that is continuing to draw attention to it so that the government essentially gets shamed into doing the right thing here. And this is one of those, you know, I'm, I'm not sort of, I don't have the long-term career in the fourth estate that some do. And, and I sort of, in a sense, I'm, I'm more a, a politics man than a, a journalist, to be frank. But, but this is one of those moments where I think journalism has a pivotal role to play in the body politic as the fourth estate in our civic culture and society. And anyone listening, I would urge them to talk to their friends about it. And, and I hope, Hugh, that you are able to stick to it and talk to me about anything that I can do as well to push it further, because the government needs to be shamed quickly into covering this gap, not eventually so that it can say it did when it's too late. It's already too late, frankly, but it becomes even later if they don't get the hell on with it. And we're counting down to Christmas, you know? I mean, you talk about people in need, you know, let's call it what it is, people who, who can be suicidal. The idea that at this time of year, that gap continues to be there and the government doesn't fix it. This is what people hate about politics. There needs to be a continuity around decision-making like this, whether you like or loathe one side of politics or the other. When there is a shift from one side to the other, what had been locked in of this nature can't just be undone because there's been a change of government. That is a domestic version of sovereign risk for our citizens that government creates, and it's not good enough. It's far from good enough. And you know, hopefully, with some continued public pressure, they can be shamed into doing the right thing. Too late, but better late than never if they at least get it done. Yeah, Fortum due to shut its doors uh, within about six weeks at the end of next month. So let's hope that uh, with all the people they help. Peter, great to talk to you as always. And I might try to get in a prof and hack with you from Bali at the G20 next week. It may be technically impossible, but we'll give it a crack. Well, fingers crossed. And if not, we'll talk about it on your return. Okay, then, mate. All the best. See you, mate. been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. 
To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.